for Mountain Radio Astronomy this month, Grote Reber, father of radio astronomy, was visiting the NRAO in the spring of 1996, and he visited Allegheny Mountain Radio and shared the following interview with Gibbs Kinderman. We have a very special uh, treat for the listeners. We're going to be talking to Mr. Grote Reber, who is recognized worldwide and certainly in Greenbank as the father of radio astronomy. Mr. Reber uh, lives in Tasmania. He's been visiting at the observatory for the last two months. Mr. Reber, tell us how you first got interested in radio astronomy. I became interested in radio astronomy via the route of amateur radio. And uh, I was an ardent amateur during the years in high school and in college. I had made contact with people throughout the world, and it looked as though that was about finished. There's nothing much more to do. Along about that time, I read this article by Carl G. Jansky, who uh, was assigned the task of, uh, of finding the direction of arrival of shortwave atmospherics. I found that what he had to do was very interesting, not his main job, he did his main job, but he was an example uh, of, of the right man at the right place doing the right thing at the right time. If he had worked a, a few years earlier or later, uh, solar activity would have been so high that the ionosphere would have prevented outside radio waves from coming in. He was working in the early 30s. And what he found was that most of the time there wasn't any atmospherics and that there were some little wiggles left on the chart. And he became interested in these little wiggles and uh, found that they, lo and behold, came from outside space, uh, somehow associated with the Milky Way. Now, most people uh, would have neglected it. They would say, all oh, these little wiggles don't mean anything. They're too faint to be of any interest and skipped it. But he was curious and uh, diligent and was able to bring forth this proposition. So, uh, about that time I got out of school and looking for a job, and so I wrote to him, this was 1933, and, and asked him if they were going to do some more of these kind of researches, I would like to be included in the staff. And he wrote back and said, no, it was unfortunate that they weren't going to do anything more and that their operations were finished. So that opportunity was closed. Was, was his discovery of this radiation from the Milky Way an accident, a byproduct of some other project he was involved in? Well, yes. Uh, it's sort of interesting. You read his first article, which was written in December 1931. It appeared in the Journal of the, uh, the Proceedings of the Institution of Radio Engineers in December 1932. And at the bottom is, uh, in it, he points out that these little wiggles on the chart come up in the east at dawn, pass through south at noon, disappear in the west in the evening. And he thinks they're somehow associated with the sun, not directly from the sun, maybe secondary radiation from the upper atmosphere by primary solar radiation falling on the Earth's atmosphere. Well, uh, as is usual, 
the referees stumble and bumble and fumble around for months. And in the final article that's published, there's a little footnote. And it says this proposition that these little wiggles and bumps are due to the sun is wrong because now they pass through south at 4.30 in the morning. So they can't be connected with the sun. There's something else. And in the meantime, he's working on this and trying to trace them down. He writes another article in 1933, uh, which shows that they're associated with the Milky Way. And that's the discovery of celestial radio waves. As I said, I thought that it would be interesting to come and work on these with him. But they had no practical value. Was, they were so faint, they weren't even worth investigating for purposes of interference. And the Bell Labs had already spent five years' salary on him while he fiddled with this useless business, and they weren't going to spend any more. I consulted several different astronomers, and optical astronomers know sensibly nothing about radio, and so we couldn't make any connection. More specifically, I went to see old Otto Struve at Yerkes Observatory and Harlow Shapley at Harvard. Struve had never heard of it. Harlow had. And I was wondering, when I talked to Harlow, if they would be interested in taking the matter up. And he said they would, but they were overextended now. They had more projects than their finances would support. And there was people out at Caltech were uh, considering it, but they didn't do anything. And so I thought to myself, "Good old boy, if anything's going to be done, you're it. So, so I considered the whole matter, and I ended up building a big dish. And that's how I got into radio astronomy. A big, a parabolic dish? Yes. Mm -hmm. And what, was where, what formal training or formal education had you had at this time? Did you have a Ph.D.? Well, I graduated from what's now the Illinois Institute of Technology in Electrical Engineering in 1933. But we didn't have any formal education in astronomy. And it's just as well, because I probably would have been pushed off onto something else. But this way I could be fussy and solicit what I needed to know and skip the rest. So it turned out quite well. Mm -hmm. So you built, where, where did you build this first parabolic dish? Where were you located? Uh, see, I was working in the radio industry in Chicago at the time. And I had connections with various people and organizations through the business world. And uh, there was a fellow from RCA who used to come around about every fortnight and try to sell us vacuum tubes for our receivers. And I found out that RCA had a fellow named Kilgore who built a six-centimeter watt magnetron. And I showed this article to my friend and the sales staff, and he said he'd get me one. So when he came around the next time, he had one in his pocket. So I got started at six centimeters, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is a pretty short wavelength even today. Nowadays, radio astronomy is paid for by the government, by the taxpayers. Were you financing this all out of your own pocket? Well, this business of the government supporting science is relatively new. During my day, the government didn't do anything like that. The government didn't have much money. It didn't meddle with other people's business. 
and the dollar was worth a lot. That is, I got a job at $25 a week, which was considered a, a huge wage in that day. But everything else was cheap. You could buy a good pair of shoes for $2 and a half. A loaf of bread was 10 cents mm -hmm. and so on. And furthermore, the Uncle Sam wasn't as grasping as he is today. That is, there was a $2,000 minimum. That is, unless you made more than $2,000, you didn't pay any income tax. And three quarters of the population didn't pay any income tax because they made less than two thousand dollars. <laughs> These squiggles you were you were talking about that Jansky had observed is is that the same thing as what might be called cosmic static? The the squiggles and cosmic static are they the same thing? Well, yes. Um, what what he did. Uh, and what I did were commensurate, and I gave it the name of cosmic static. Oh, that was your term. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Tell us about your first observations with your, your first uh, parabolic dish with, with the donated magnetron. The magnetron, see, my employer had an open mind, and he allowed me to have the machine shops at Stuart Warner make up the magnets for it, the hardware. And also, I appropriated various parts of electronic gear necessary to drive the magnets and so on. Between the philanthropy of RCA and giving me the magnetron and, and my philanthropic employer, I didn't pay anything. So it was for free. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that's the way it had to be because I didn't have much money. <laughs> Tell us something about your first uh, observations at the... Uh 160 megahertz band. Well, the first, the very first observations were made at six centimeters, and I couldn't find anything from the sun or the stars or the moon or anything else. And so I built another receiver at 30 centimeters, and again I couldn't find anything of celestial origin, but I could hear automobile ignition noise, so it was improving. In the meantime, I had made a lot of experiments with circular waveguides. And uh, it turned out that a, a circular waveguide about a half wavelength in diameter w would be a suitable device for focusing at the dish. See, the focal point equipment should look at the dish and nowhere else. And sticking a couple dipoles out there isn't going to do that. You've got to put the active dipole inside a can. And I... F consulted with the people who made aluminum sheet, and the biggest aluminum sheet they had was six feet wide and 12 feet long. So if you roll that up, you get a, you get a cylinder six feet long and about four feet in diameter, and that determined the frequency. So the first observations with a, at 160 megs were determined by the size of this drum. <laughs> <laughs> Purely practical. Uh -huh. Uh, I had it outside, and my laboratory as such was in the basement. And lo and behold, the first time I turned it on, automobile ignition noise was very strong. In fact, it swamped everything else. And that was one afternoon or one morning, about late 1938. I persisted, though, and it turned out that the, this was, Wheaton at that time was a small community of maybe 2,500 people. And most people went to bed at night, and they didn't drive their cars around in the early hours of the morning, so it was quiet. 
and I tried this out. Uh, I put it on the dish and tried it out. And the very first night when I made the observations, I got a wiggle when the Milky Way went by. So it was 100% success. And I persisted in doing this for some time. Was it difficult to get the scientific world to accept the validity of your results? Did, did other scientists become interested in your work, conventional astronomers, physicists? No, regrettably they didn't. Or maybe fortunately they didn't. In, in any case, the optical astronomers had all the astronomy they could handle, and they didn't know anything about radio, so they were completely uninterested. And old Struve seemed to take the attitude, if, if they didn't pay much attention to me, maybe it would go away. But it didn't. And Harvard, Harlow Shapley uh, at Harvard uh, had a more open mind. He thought it was great stuff and I should persist. But he, he couldn't contribute anything financially or theoretically or any other way. How many years was it? You, you started in the late 1930s. How many years was it until other people started working in radio astronomy? Well, I got my first results, I think it was in March 1939. And there was a war brewing in Europe at that time, but it didn't break out until whatever it was, October, I guess, 39. And I persisted and kept working at it. And then we got into the war on the 7th of December 1941. And I worked on military equipment during the day, and at night I would fill it with my stuff. So I persisted for several years, in fact for 10 years I think it was, before anybody else got interested, after the war. Mm -hmm. But transistors still hadn't been invented. They didn't get invented I think till 1953. So everything was vacuum tube at that day. But you were you were enjoying your work so much it didn't matter to you that other people it didn't matter to you that other people weren't getting interested in radio astronomy. Your own intellectual well, interest was enough to keep you going. Not really. You see, the optical people were thinking of resolution in arc minutes or arc seconds. And the best I could do was a resolution of about five degrees. And so it looked pretty hopeless to them. And if it's poor resolution, you couldn't find out with any accuracy where these radio waves came from. But you got to start somewhere. And, and so I persisted. And then after the war, we had a lot of microwave equipment in the form of radar. And this gave resolution in the order of a few degrees or less. And so it was assisted after the war by the technology development during the war. Did you use some of the components of radar in your telescopes? Well, no, really, because this, this was an unfortunate natural world. That is, the wavelength, as the wavelength goes shorter, these celestial radiations got weaker, and the, the, the radar stuff and its development was at the short wave end, that is below 10 centimeters. And the intensity was very low down there. And before the invention of the transistor, 
the tube system had such high internal noise and such low gain that it wasn't effective. When did you start working at the 480 megahertz band? You were you well, the equipment for that? Okay, this is a matter of philosophy. I, I had done a survey of the sky at 160, and it, it was published about 1944, I guess, maybe earlier. Some of it got published as early as 1940. Now, if you're going to make a set of comparative observations, it's it's useless to compare them with something, say, one and a half times as short in wavelength, because there won't be much change. And two to one is about the, the, the limit, but three to one would be different. In other words, by the time we shortened the wavelength by a factor of three, or the frequency increased by a factor of three, then we should find differences in the different sources of these radiations, and we did. So it was purely picked out of thin air as a factor of three. And it, and it worked. And it worked. Mm -hmm. <laughs> some, of, some of the early equipment that you built, your early telescopes have been rebuilt and, and are on the site at Greenbank. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, after the war, the National Bureau of Standards had money they didn't know what to do with. And so I sold them my gear, and there's, their field station was where Dulles Airport is. And I went out there and worked with them for about three years, getting things put together and operating and so on. But they, they couldn't find any use for it. And about that time, they were being pressured by the airport, air, air people to get out of there and turn it over to the, the Dallas airport people. In other words, they were run out of business. And then they went out to Colorado. See, I had left in the meantime. And they went out to Colorado, and uh, my dish was all taken apart and shipped out there, but never put together. And, and about that time, this is 1960, uh, NRAO had a chief of staff in New York named Amber, Amberson. What's his first name? Anyhow, anyhow, he became interested in, in salvaging it. So he got all the parts out in Colorado, shipped back here to West Virginia, and I came and worked there a summer and, and more, uh, getting it all put together again. So it's original stuff. Was it ever used for observing here in oh, West that Virginia? That fellow's name was Dick Emerson. And you was, it, was your original uh, instrument ever used for observing here in West Virginia? Or was it just put together for display purposes? Well, it was put together not to be used, I find, because they had other telescopes which were better by that time, but put together as a historical item. And as such, it, it seemed to fill the bill. Mm -hmm. While you were uh, still working in Illinois making your observations, you were approached by a Dutch scientist, Van de Holst? Oh, yes. Tell us that story. Well, the war ended, I think, in August 1945. 
And Van der Holst was one of the young men in Holland who got an opportunity to come to America. And he went around to the various observatories to, to see what they were doing optically. And when he got to Yerkes Observatory, which is in Williams Bay, Wisconsin, they, he was told that I was doing something that was called radio astronomy about 60 miles away. And so one afternoon they drove him down to my place and he looked around and he was quite impressed. This was late 1945. And uh, he told me about this hydrogen line thing that he had predicted at 1420 megacycles. Can, can you explain to me a little bit what the hydrogen line is, what that means? Well, it's purely theoretical. He, See, I, I tried to find out from him what to expect. He didn't know what to expect. That is, he couldn't tell me if the line was going to be in emission or in absorption. He had that little knowledge of the matter. It had to be determined experimentally, and he wondered if I would be interested, and I was interested, but I didn't have any, any more facilities, and so I never was able to follow it up. And this was at four, 1,400 megahertz? Yeah. Much higher frequency than you had worked at before. Yes, in fact, about another factor of three. So it would have been worthwhile. I, I, I'd like to say I contributed to it, but I didn't. <laughs> well, what, what happened when radio astronomy started observing at that frequency range? Well, I had nothing to do with it, really. Uh, Ewan and Purcell, where were they? Uh, Harvard. Anyhow, they they built some equipment, rather simple equipment, using the latest uh, t microwave technology of that day, and they were able to find a hydrogen line, and fortunately it was in emission. See, trying to find a bright emission line on a faint background is easy. But trying to find a dark absorption line on a bright background, that's much more difficult. Mm -hmm. But they were lucky. It was an, an emission line. Where was the hydrogen coming from that they first observed? Well, that's a moot question even today. <laughs> but probably from interstellar space. Mm -hmm. What did you do uh, after the war, after you finished working for the Bureau of Standards in, well, up by Dulles? My experiences in Washington were rather unhappy. It was during the Joe McCarthy era, and he was going around damning everybody, and so I decided I would leave, and I went out to Hawaii, and I worked out there for three years. Mm -hmm. And then after that petered out, I went down to Australia, and I've been working down there off and on for the past 30 years. and. Uh, this, that subject's completely different. The Australia experience, yeah. Tell, tell us a little bit about your early days when you first got involved in radio. Back, how old were you, 10, 11 years old, when you first became an amateur operator? Well, my parents apparently had an open mind, but they looked upon people who worked with their hands as plumbers. As if you're going to be a significant person, you should work with your head, like a lawyer. 
or a school teacher or something like that. But they put up with me and they bought me certain amounts of gear and I got my first amateur operator's license when I was not yet 16. And the main thing in that day was being able to read code. And you had to be able to read code at 10 words a minute. And I easily passed that. And so they issued me an operator's license. And then I went over to another part of the, this was in Chicago, another part of the establishment and applied for a station license and asked me a few simple questions about Ohm's law and that kind of thing, you know, <laughs> and how you converted wavelength to frequency and simple elementary stuff, which I was able to, to, to pass. So I got a station license and this was, had a the call number W9GFZ and uh, I used that for quite a few years and I bought a, a modern call book a couple of years ago to see if it had been reassigned. It hasn't. It's still open. Maybe they expect me to come back <laughs> and take it up, <laughs> but, but I'm afraid I'm not going to. What, what were your activities? What did you do with your station when you were a teenager? your amateur activities, mainly just talking to other amateur radio operators? Oh, in that day it was all code and it was in a large measure uh, an exercise in engineering and construction. Today it's mostly all phone and it's a social activity. Mm -hmm. So the, the outlook is considerably changed. But I can still read code 20 words a minute if it's machine keyed, 20 words a minute hand keyed, the operator slurs the letters, so it's difficult to read. When you learn code, you never forget it. So the, the challenges in amateur radio when you were young were to build transmitters and antennas that could... And receivers. More, and receivers that were more, more powerful. You could... Exactly. Like DXing today, people do, yeah. trying to, to be able to communicate greater distances. Yes, in other words, all your gear was homemade. Today you can go to a, a big radio store and buy all this stuff ready-made. All you have to do is to connect it up and plug it in and you're in business. That was not possible in that day. Did, who did you learn from? Did you just teach yourself out of books or were there other older well, people you worked with? See, see, I built a receiver first. That's when I was, I think, about 15 years old. It wasn't a very good receiver, but it was reasonably satisfactory. And I'd listened to commercial stations, and they had what they called a 10-letter code. It was 10 more or less random letters that maybe represent a phrase or a situation or a series of words. And they were just random letters as far as the receiving person was concerned. And then they would repeat. So I would listen in to one of these stations that was running 10-letter code and write down the 10 letters, and then they would repeat. And I could see where I made mistakes and which were correct, and you learn pretty fast that way. So I had no trouble passing the code part of it. What was the, as, as you were building your early radio telescopes, what was the most challenging technical problem you had to overcome? I think the most challenging technical problem 
was this business of the spectrum getting weaker as the wavelengths got shorter. I had hoped it was the other way, because then as you went to short waves, you could get better, but it was obviously uh, getting weaker as the wavelength went shorter. And, and I found this, uh, see, what I found at 160 megs was far weaker than what Jansky found. He worked at about 15 meters, something on that order. And if it had been the way I'd like it, it would have been 10 times stronger, but it wasn't. It was about 10 times weaker. And then it was weaker again at 480. And at, uh, and at 900 megs, at 33 centimeters, it couldn't hear anything. So did you work to design more sensitive receivers, more and, and quieter receivers? How, how did you deal with the noise problem? How did I? Deal with the noise problem in your receivers. How did you oh, make them quieter? Well, the signals were much stronger at, at the, those longer wavelengths than they were at microwaves. And, and so I didn't have much noise problem with the receiver. Hmm. It, it just didn't accumulate. You mentioned that RCA gave you a key piece of, of gear, the magnetron, to build your, your first... Uh, telescope. Did any other industrial companies help you out with uh, parts and, and technical support? Well, RCA was the leading vacuum tube manufacturer of the day. I got my 955s there at uh, Acorn Triodes fr from the same source, but when it came to Acorn Pentodes, the 954, it, it wasn't so successful. And I had made inquiry about this from, from the RCA man, and in a couple of weeks he came around with a little box. In it, I think he had 34 acorn pentodes, and they were numbered. And he says, this is the stuff I get from the factory. Now, I want you to examine each one and write me an analysis of, of what's the matter with it. And the ones that are okay, you can have. So I, <laughs> I did this, <laughs> and I, got, I think I got about eight or, eight, eight or so good ones, and the rest of the batch went back, and I think he went out to the factory and chewed them out for, for putting out such a bad product. <laughs> In other words, this was a customer's appraisal. <laughs> so uh, my arrangements with the... Uh, radio industry were pretty good <laughs> definitely did you you said in the in the mid 1950s you moved to Tasmania did you continue with your work in radio astronomy in no Tasmania? there was nobody doing any radio astronomy down there then uh, there was somebody a fellow named John Bolton who worked for the British and he did some experiments in radio astronomy in the early 50s from uh, Australia, not from Tasmania. Tasmania is a, a large island off the southeast corner of Australia, and there was nobody down there doing anything. Why did you pick Tasmania as a place to move? Well, when I was in Washington, I had access to a lot of ionospheric data. And, and amongst this, apparently you could get money for probing the ionosphere and measuring its characteristics. So a lot of outfits did, mainly because they get, get money to do something with. 
So there was uh, maybe 50 stations around the world that were doing this. I determined from this vast amount of data that Tasmania had a more transparent ionosphere than anywhere else in the Southern Hemisphere. There was another place in the Northern Hemisphere that was similar up near Churchill that's and in Canada and the Hudson Bay. And the weather is severe compared to the moderate weather of Tasmania. And furthermore, what's more important is the Churchill operation looked out on the northern sky, which is not particularly interesting. That's toward the periphery of the Milky Way. The southern sky looks out toward the center of the Milky Way, which is much more interesting. So uh, I, I chose to work down there. It, I, if you hadn't become the first radio astronomer, do you yeah. think you would have worked in some other aspect of electrical engineering or... What do you think well, you might have done? I might have, uh, but I'm not a theoretical man. I, I'm an operating technician type of man who builds stuff and tries them out. And the if it fits with the theory, fine. If it doesn't, you change the theory. You don't change the observations. Did it surprise you how, how big radio astronomy grew as a, as a science? As it started? Well, yes, it, it still surprises me that uh, apparently this has been a popular scientific sport and people can get money to do it, as evidenced by NRAO <laughs> and why I'm here. So I, I'm in favor of it.